Good morning. I've got to tell you, it's a particular joy. It's always a joy to stand in the pulpit knowing that I get to share truth with you for the next 35 or 40 minutes, but it's a particular joy to be here and look out in a church I've never been in before, but see so many faces that I know so well. So, those of you who have not been at Covenant, when we launched this in 2014, it's great to meet you uh, this morning and greetings from the elders at Covenant. Uh, when they heard that I was coming, I became a very, you know, they became quite jealous of my call this morning and the job that I got to get to do this morning. It is, uh, we pray for you as a church. We have been praying for you faithfully. We prayed for you when this building was just an idea. We prayed for you as you made your transition here and the, the investment that was, the cost that that was to this church to come and preach the gospel here in Prospect Park. And you guys are walking through a season now of trial and uncertainty, and we are praying for you now. Uh, we are very confident as we pray for you that God will be faithful to Risen Hope Church and that He has wonderful things in store for the future of this ministry. Uh, as Alex said, I've been at Covenant Fellowship since 2006. I'm here, I, I'm, I'm the proud father of six children and the proud husband of one woman. Uh, she, uh, she is here, she'll be walking in momentarily. She's taking our youngest to children's ministry. Uh, my others are uh, preoccupied today, going to Covenant or scattered around the world as they serve in the armed forces. I have a distinct privilege of coming to you today out of 2 Corinthians 5. Would you please turn in your Bibles there? Got an opportunity to hear Alex's message from last week where he provided the cover, he covered the topic of marriage. He provided definition and biblical parameters and it was clear and persuasive I trust you agree. Folks, this topic is a very important topic for our time, not just to reinforce thoughts we may have come in here with, but it's important to know why the Bible teaches what it teaches. And he's asked me to come today and to preach on the practicalities of marriage. I hope you'll give me the first half of this message to go a bit broader than that. What we're going to do out of 2 Corinthians 5, before we get to the specific application to marriage, we're going to spend the first half of our time just talking about the power for relationships. And there's, there's a reason I have entitled this message, The Power for Marriage, which maybe you might have expected following last week. So much of what I face in marriage counseling is not actually specific to marriage at all. You face selfishness, you face offense, you face struggle to forgive, which we all face in all of our relationships. There's a particular intensity to those topics in marriage, but the, but the subject matter is broadly accessible. And the main point of what we're going to be doing today applies to all of us, whether we are not yet married, never have been married, never will be married, are married, used to be married. All of that, the Lord wants to speak into 
this morning. And so we're not calling this message power for marriage. We're calling it power for relationships. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. We'll jump into verse 14 and we'll go to verse 19. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Father, as we come to your word, we ask for the help of your spirit. All of this would be in vain if your spirit did not anoint this preaching, if your spirit was not active applying and illuminating your word in our lives. And so we choose right now in this moment of prayer to make ourselves aware of the activity of your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, would you kindly change us because we've set under your word. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of the text that I read, and I want to build the argument with you. I want you to see the argument Paul is building before we even try to understand why he's building it. He starts in verse 14 with the gospel. He says, one has died for all. Right in verse 14 is this foundational building block of the gospel. Then in verse 15, He gives us the why of the gospel. Why has God saved us? Well, one of the reasons is so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but that we might live for him who died for us. We do ourselves a great disservice if we skip verse 14 and we go straight straight to verse 15. If we try to live a life that's pleasing to God, but we do it without the gospel, We end up having no power to live the life God's called us to. So the order of Paul's argument is very, very important. He starts with the gospel. One died for all so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died. Are you with me so far? So as we're living for him, he tells us a very important key on how to do that. We no longer regard one another according to the flesh. Go back to the beginning with me. The gospel is the foundation out of which we're called to live for Christ and not for ourselves. What does that look like? We don't regard one another according to the flesh any longer. Something 
has changed so substantially that we can't trust our eyes in how we regard one another. We can't trust our feelings in how we regard one another. We can't just be street smart in how we regard one another. Something has changed that fundamentally shifts how we look at one another, how we treat one another. And what is it? It's in the very next verse. Verse 17. You are a new creation in Christ. Now let's build this from the beginning. The gospel saves us so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And in doing that, we no longer regard one another according to the flesh because I'm a new creation and you're a new creation. And up here on the, on the top of this mountain we're climbing, at the pinnacle of this mountain, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Is that really true. I look a whole lot like I used to look. You look a whole lot like you used to look, but something has happened that's made me a new creation. I don't know if I can trust that. He then goes on to verse 18 to assure us. Can we trust that? Yes, because all of this is from God. He saves us to live a life for Christ that we might no longer live according to the flesh. We might no longer regard one another according to the flesh because in Christ we're all new creations. And that's a good, secure thing because all of this is from God. And then, of course, he ends that argument in verse 19 with the gospel. God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. The fuel for living as we ought, the fuel for regarding one another as we ought, the fuel to let, leave the past behind and to move forward is this. In your salvation, you were made new. You are no longer stuck with the, the power you had before Christ. You have a new purpose. You have a new power. And that's because he has made you a new creation. So that's the climax of Paul's argument, the new creation. That's the pinnacle, and we're just about five minutes in. Where in the world do I go from there? We need to now apply what in the world does that mean? How do I now live as a new creation? What are the implications of this? What are the implications in how I regard myself? What are the implications in how we regard one another? And then finally, what are the implications for how I regard my spouse? Well, let's get into it. A view from the top, ourselves. We go back to the pinnacle and we ask this question. What is the truest thing that can be said about me? How do you answer that question? If, if you're in church and you're thinking theologically, you may say, well, I, I'm a great sinner in need of a great Savior. You may be a great sinner, but you already have the great Savior. The truest thing about you 
is as you dealt with your sin in your profession of faith with Jesus and now live in the power of the Spirit, the truest thing that can be said about you is that you are a new creation. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have a new heart placed within you that no longer repels the truth but is eager to receive the truth. You have been cleansed from your sin. You have been bought out of immeasurable debt with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. You've been made royalty through your adoption. You have been given riches beyond measure because you are a co-heir with Christ. You are sealed with the everlasting promises of God. And do you know who did all of that? Not you, not me, not your pastors. It was God. God did all of that. The truest things about you are immovable because you didn't achieve them, so you cannot lose them. Jesus achieved it. And he didn't say, I hope it sticks. He said, it is finished. This is the truest thing that can be said about you. This is your true nature. This dictates your eternal destiny. So how should that change what you see in the mirror? How do you view your weaknesses? How do you regard your shortcomings? How do you view those parts of you that always made you feel less because you wished they were thinner or stronger or prettier or more refined? Friend, there's good news this morning. Because Jesus has made you a new creation, we no longer regard ourselves according to the flesh that we see. We no longer regard ourselves according to this flesh. God made no mistakes when He made you. God is good and God does good. So our contentment as new creations is no longer found in personal perfection or physical perfection or fleshly perfection or in worldly accomplishments. We are most content as new creations when we live for Jesus. We are most content because it's not, it's not because it's, it's just better. It is better. But it's because it's in sync with how he has now created us. We are a new creation. Self is no longer in the center. Jesus is. And when you feel friction in your life, when you feel discontentment stirring in your life, come back to this question. Am I desiring something Jesus doesn't desire for me? Am I pursuing something Jesus does not want me to pursue? Because if I am not living for Him who died for me, then I'm going to feel that discontentment. 
We are most content when we live for Christ. The truth of this new identity as new creations, that truth fuels the how and the why in our relationships. It's the source that powers Christian living. And in this one passage, through the gospel, we are given a new identity and a new purpose. Then through the infilling of the Spirit that comes as a result of the gospel, we are given new power to live according to the call of Jesus Christ. This new gospel identity radically changes how we view ourselves, how we prioritize, how we think, how we handle offense, how we regard trial. It radically changes if we'll live from the top of that mountain, if we'll live from that pinnacle, if the truest thing about you, not only theologically, but functionally day by day, is this, Lord, you have made me a new creation. So let's go back to the top and ask ourselves this, how does this change our view of others? Listen, you do not need to be born again to be an image bearer of God. All of mankind is created in the image of God. However, the born-again Christian, those who are saved from their trespasses and sins, those who are made alive in Christ, are image bearers who are also new creations. And this is how the gospel calls us and instructs us and commands us to consider one another. This is the large battery pack behind every one another in the New Testament. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Encourage one another. Why? Because that person who needs forgiveness is a new creation. That person who needs encouragement is a new creation. Right now, they're not on the mountaintop. Brothers and sisters, come bear a little of their burden and take them back to that top. Take them back to that pinnacle where they can feel the power and the joy and the relief and the light yoke and the easy burden of being new creations in Jesus Christ. This is how we are to regard our fellow church members, people who are in our small groups. This is how we regard the officers of the church. This is how we regard pastors. We are all new creations in Christ. And that's how we're supposed to think about them. That's how we're supposed to talk to them. That's how we're supposed to treat them just like the new creations God has made them to be. Let me take one, one another, and apply it. Ephesians 4.32 simply says this. It's so simple. Be kind to one another. That's all it says. Be kind to one another. Now, if you're left in your old identity regarding yourself according to the flesh, thinking of yourself and thinking of this person you're called to be kind to as in the flesh, you're left with a few somewhat obvious questions. For what? 
what good does that do for me? What if I'm kind, but the other person is not kind back to me? That doesn't seem fair. Now, let me ask you, these questions make a lot of sense. If it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, if it's every man and woman for him and herself out there, kindness can be risky. But we no longer regard ourselves according to the flesh. We no longer regard others according to the flesh. We are called to a different way of life. No longer living for ourselves, but living for him who died for us. Do you see the importance of this gospel foundation and this gospel call that brings us to this gospel truth that leads to gospel living? We can fake kindness in the flesh. There's enough power in the batteries that run our flesh to fake kindness for a little while. But that annoying person you work with drains that battery pretty quickly. That neighbor who seems to pick on everything you do with your yard, they drain your battery pretty quickly. The kindness battery in the power of the flesh runs out pretty quickly. Do you know what has endless power? The battery that fuels your flesh. Oh, you thought I was going to say Spirit of God. I'm going there. But the battery that fuels your flesh, yourself, self-promotion and self-protection, that has endless power. So you're going to run out of the kindness and be left with this powerful, frustrated self. That way of living eventually bites all of us. In God, we're called to lay that whole economy of living aside. We unplug from the flesh battery, and we plug right into the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he has saved us and called us to live according to him who died, and we don't regard ourselves or others according to the flesh any longer, that different economy has led us to be new creations in Christ, made that way by Jesus himself. And this is from God, which means it's good, who doesn't hold our trespasses against us. Now, in the power of the Spirit we're given in that new way of life, we're kind because Jesus is kind. We are kind to one another because the Spirit of Christ within me is kind. And as I am walking in step with that Spirit, the aroma of kindness should come out of me because He is making me day by day more into His image. And so when we come across, be kind to one another, and you say, I don't want to, you just have to ask yourself right there, who's first? Is Jesus or is it you? And that's revealing which battery you're drawing from. That's revealing whose marching orders you're obeying. So that's how we are to view ourselves as new creations in Christ. That's how we're to view others as new creations. We treat others differently, particularly other believers differently, because they are different in Christ. They are purchased by the power of the same blood you've been purchased by. And so we treat them 
as brothers and sisters. So with all of that calling, with all of that background, with all of that power for relationships, let's come to the topic of marriage. Let's take these things and let's bring them into this very concentrated relationship. We come to a place in marriage where in God's wisdom, He has taken 100% of two sinners and He has squeezed us into one flesh. That's 200% in a 100%. It gets crowded in there. Right? And let me tell you, if we regard one another according to the flesh, that one flesh relationship is a very oppressive place. If we regard one another according to the flesh, marriage is a, is a list over decades of wins or losses. It's a future of battles, my will and her will, your will and his will. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to something greater. We are called to something more glorious. Listen, this danger of seeing our spouse in the flesh, of regarding our spouse according to the flesh, Paul points this out right in our passage. You're saying, Rob, this passage doesn't have very much to do with marriage. But listen to what he says about Jesus in verse 16. Take a look. He said, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What is he talking about? What is he getting to when he says we regarded Christ according to the flesh? Well, even his disciples hopelessly grieved his death. They thought it was over. You remember the road to Emmaus, right? They were grieving. I thought he was the one. I thought, and then this third person comes along to try to encourage. Of course, that was Jesus, right? But they thought it was over. Even his followers regarded him in the flesh, thinking it was over. Jesus' opponents celebrated the conclusion of his uprising. The authorities were just glad to get on the other side of Jesus. Maybe we can put all this behind us. They regarded this Jewish carpenter according to the flesh, and it caused everybody to underestimate who he really was. They regarded him like he was here, but he was immeasurably more, immeasurably more than the flesh could testify, immeasurably more than we'd ever see if we regarded him according to the flesh. Because what happened? That stone was rolled away. Mary saw the risen Christ. Thomas puts his hand in Jesus' side. The apostles watched him ascend into heaven. After all of those things, they could no longer regard him according to the flesh. It would, 
how we viewed Jesus was fundamentally changed when we realized he was more than he was in the flesh. Everything was different. Now listen, because of the gospel, remember this argument we built, because of the gospel, not only are you a new creation, your spouse is a new creation. And as you live for Jesus, not for yourself, but for him who died, as you live that way, you are called to regard your spouse as Christ regards your spouse. Your spouse is not yours to do with as you choose. I want to say that again. Your spouse is not yours to do with as you choose. Ladies, your husband is a new creation. He is a child of the one true king. Gentlemen, your wife is a new creation. She is a co-heir with you, with Jesus. You know, when I sit in my office and couples come for counseling, they're often, not always, but they are often on their best behavior. I hear stories of screaming rants and slammed doors, but very infrequently are people screaming in marriage counseling. Very infrequently are they slamming things in my office. Why is that? It's because I'm in the room. Now, I'm not this massive physical imposing presence. But there's a degree of respect for where we are and for who I am that they're not going to be as ugly as they can be with each other. They're not going to reveal all of their awfulness in front of me in all of its glory. Why? Simply because I'm in the room. And friend, I want to say something to you. God is always in the room. God is always in the room when you are with your spouse. And He calls you. He calls you to regard your spouse as He has made your spouse to be. Gentlemen, He tells you, she is mine. And she is royalty. And you will treat her like that. Ladies, He says to you, he belongs to me, and he is royalty, and you will speak to him as such. The lesson is clear. You are no longer in Christ. You are no longer able to regard your spouse according to the flesh. Christ died for all so that you could live for him which in this new economy we no longer regard one another according to the flesh because your spouse is made as a new creation. And you're like, well, I didn't do that. No, you didn't. God did that. All this is from God. 
who doesn't hold our trespasses against us, therefore we must no longer hold trespasses against them. Now, what in the world does that look like on the ground? What does it look like to have a spouse who's a new creation? What claims does that make on my life? What does it look like for me to be a new creation in my marriage? And what claims does that make on our marriage? I want to look at three points of application. Okay, with all of this out of 2 Corinthians 5, three points of application. Communication, disagreement or conflict, and the long haul. Let's look at number one. When new creations communicate. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34, that our words are simply the overflow of our hearts. Two verses later, it's one of the scarier verses in all the Bible. Let it sit on you. We're going to give account for every careless word we speak. God thinks our speech matters a lot. And so he teaches us how to use it. Ephesians 4.29, we're going to look at one verse briefly. Ephesians 4.29 gives us our speaking marching orders. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. At the end of that verse kind of gives our whole job description as speakers, as new creation speakers. We are called to be givers of grace with our words. Is that how your hearers would regularly describe you? Man, when he speaks, I just feel grace. When she speaks, I just feel grace. That's what we're called to. But if we still regard ourselves according to the flesh, we have no grace to give because we're not in that conversation for the other person. We're in that conversation for ourselves. We don't rise to the goal of honoring God. And so until we see ourselves and our spouses as new creations, we are destined to sin in our communication. And one plus one equals two. It, 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 it's going to happen. We live at war with who God has made us and our spouse to be. And when we do that, in this new creation relationship, when we live according to the flesh, we surrender the power God gives us to be givers of grace with our words. There's a better way to communicate. There's a way to communicate. As you get better at it, you will feel more and more pleasure from the Lord. It's not because this better way is something I have stumbled onto or I've kind of learned along the way. It's better because it's in keeping with who God made you to be and why he made you to be it. First, new creations, when they communicate, do not tear down. 
You do not tear down. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. There is no redemptive power in destroying another person. Whether you do it with your hands or with your words, there is no redemptive power. There is no good to be had through bad and corrupt actions and words. Tearing someone down with your words is devoid of the kind of aroma that Jesus calls us to have. It's devoid of love. It's devoid of hope. It's devoid of grace. No, new creations don't tear down. New creations build up. It says, but only such as is good for building up. New creations seek to help that other person be better, not worse. Be bigger, not smaller. Be stronger, not weaker. New creations speak to lift up. Ephesians 4.29 goes on to say that as fits the occasion. Listen, the right words, correct words, spoken at the wrong time are the wrong words to be spoken. Every word you say may be true, but if they're not in line with the occasion, with the need of that moment, they're the wrong words. So we're called as new creations to discern the moment. What is the need of this moment? And sometimes that just takes a little bit of humility, not assuming you know. A new creation speaker is going to say, what did you mean by that? Is going to ask questions, how are you doing today? You're going to investigate the moment a little bit before you speak into it. Listen, if you have something true you feel like somebody needs to say, but you're not sure it's the right moment for it, loving somebody well in the moment does not somehow negate the opportunity to tell the truth later. When the moment is right for the truth, we need to discern that moment. And as I said, new creations speak with grace. They lead conversations toward Jesus. And he was a master at this. Sometime when you're just looking, what can I learn that's new? Read the four Gospels and just study how Jesus talks. Of course, you can study what he says. That's good. But sometimes just study his manner of speaking. He was presented with lots of moments that he could have said something else but he said what he said. Ask yourself in your Bible reading, why did he say that? What has he done? He's a grace-giving speaker who builds up and does not tear down, who discerns the need of the moment. The woman at the well made small talk with him. Jesus turned that moment to a life-changing dialogue. His enemies sought to trap him with this verbal argument or with that verbal argument. And he somehow, somehow turns those conversations to give us some of the best teaching that we have in the New Testament. Zacchaeus just wanted a better view. Jesus turns that conversation into a redemptive party. Pilate starts a conversation with Jesus. Jesus turned those conversations to make the most uncertain person in that room, Pilate, 
not Jesus. How did he do it? Well, I want to give you a tool that will help you with new creation speaking. And it's the tool of first response. Listen, the course of a conversation is determined more by the person who responds than by the person who initiates. If I walk into my home and Jesus and Gina on a very rare occasion says something harshly to me, I have a choice in that moment. Am I going to respond in kind? Or am I going to turn that, let that offense fall, and respond with kindness? How I respond probably dictates the next 30 minutes, if not more. That tool of first response is a powerful place to exercise your confidence in a sovereign God. You don't have to defend yourself. New creations, when they're living for Jesus, never simply respond the way they're spoken to. When we are reviled, what are we called to do? We're called to bless. When we are persecuted, we're called to respond in kindness. This is the Christian life, and it, there is great power in a redemptive response. All right, let's go to number two. That's new creations communicating. Number two is when new creations disagree. James 4 tells us that the conflicts we have are really simply our sinful desires waging war, both within us and with others. So we should expect in this new way of living that the sinful desires we have, we should just have our eyes trained to look for it. Where are my desires tempting me to come off that mountaintop back down to regarding each other according to the flesh? How do we approach marital conflict with, which is unavoidable without falling into sin, which is avoidable? Let me ask that question again. How do we approach marital disagreement, which is going to be unavoidable, without falling into sin, which is totally avoidable? Colossians 3.13, I'd like to give you today, says, bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And this has a direct command to us for our posture and for our long-term commitment. First, our posture. In the flesh, disagreements call us to defend ourselves, to defend our opinions, to prove the other side wrong. We are all capable of destroying the other person simply so that we don't get proven wrong. But remember that the gospel and what it says about you has diffused your need to defend yourself. Whatever your spouse thinks you're guilty of, the gospel says far worse about you. You're so bad, and I hope you're encouraged by this, you're so bad and lost that the holy Son of God had to come and live the life you're incapable of living, die a death to pay the penalty that you've accrued, and when you go to heaven, you can't even say, here I am. You're going to say, I'm here with Jesus. 
Okay, the gospel says all of that about you. You don't have to defend yourself. So rather than argue, what does a new creation do? A new creation bears with others. Forbearance is a lost art in our culture. No, the main tone of our culture is cancel culture. If someone differs from us in person or on policy, we malign and we caricature them. We must attack them and we must take them down. Friends, that is your flesh. You have been called to something higher. You have been made something higher than that. The Spirit says bear with one another. Uh, We need a posture of bearing. And we need a commitment that says our relationship does not hang in the balance of this disagreement. Think just, just so far today. Think of how many times you and God may have disagreed. Just think about it. Did you cut somebody off on the way here? Did you exceed the speed limit? Did you say anything that wasn't motivated by grace and love? Did you think anything that was selfish? I'm guilty, 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 guilty. Okay, he's disagreed with choices I've made, and I've only been, I've been up for four or five hours. But my relationship with God does not hang in the balance of every decision I make. There is security in that. There's stability in that relationship. There's assurance in that relationship because God's posture toward me is for the long haul. And in marriage, that is to be our posture toward one another. We fundamentally disagree about this issue, but our disagreement does not define us. Something bigger, something larger, something more permanent defines us. So we're committed to not allowing this disagreement to separate us. Listen, in marriage, a family of a lifelong covenant is being formed. Lives of children are being shaped by the choices of parents. Legacies are being built. How we handle disagreements determines those legacies. And so let me give you very quickly the tool of mirroring. How do you work through those disagreements? If you've got a topic that you know, and maybe it's the one raging in your mind right now, you know whenever we talk about that topic, our tempers crank up, our volume goes up, the edge on our words gets sharper, whatever that topic is. Next time you talk about it, apply this tool of mirroring which is simply repeating in your own words what you believe the other person is saying. Now here's the kicker. They get to determine if you're right. Well, here's what I'm hearing you say. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Yes, it is. Now then you've just destroyed the tool of mirroring. But if, if they have the final say in what they meant, just like you would like the final say in what you meant, That tool can help you avoid all of the temptations and all of the misunderstandings that are built into that topic in your marriage. And let me hit this last point of application. When new creations are not yet perfect. If you are married here today, I have news for you that you know all too well. You married a sinner. 
But I've got another revelation you may not spend quite as much time on. Your spouse married a sinner too. Philippians 1.6 assures us that he who began a good work in us is going to be faithful to complete it. But the Bible also assures us he's not done with us yet. And so we come to Ephesians 5, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friend, be patient with the sinner you're married to, just like you appreciate when he or she is patient with you. And how do you fuel this patience? How do you fuel this way of living? You fuel it with gratitude that the truest thing about you is that you are a new creation. You fuel it with gratitude that Jesus has been far more patient with you than you will be called to be patient with your spouse. If you ever are being frustrated by your spouse, if you are ever out of gratitude, revisit the cross and be reminded of all that you've been forgiven of all that you have been given, of all that is now truest about you, and stir gratitude again. I want to close just with this story. In the summer of 2018, our family visited Acadia National Park in Maine. It was our second trip there. The whole family loves it. On this one morning, I went hiking with two of my boys, my second and my third boy, For most of the hike, we were under tree cover. Couldn't really see the sun, couldn't see the sky. We were under tree cover, which prevented us from seeing something that actually would have been visible earlier. A storm was rolling in. We had only about half a mile of rock scramble left in front of us to get to the pinnacle, but I'm responsible for these two younger lives and this storm is rolling in fast. So I I suggested to the boys, hey guys, why don't we go ahead and turn around, see if we can get down to the bottom. And the older of the two boys that I brought said this, dad, we are so close to the top. The view looks awesome. We should keep going. Now I'm seeing only certain death and this 16 year old is seeing the view. So naturally, in my responsible adult self, we kept going. (laughs) And I will tell you, it was incredible. It was a little scary because the lightning was filling the clouds all around us as it's rolling in. But we stood at that pinnacle together we took pictures that did the view no justice. If you've ever seen, so, you know, pictures never capture that. And we didn't talk. We were there for 10, 15 minutes. We didn't say anything. The thunder and the wind were making plenty of noise. But we just looked off and saw the view going in the other direction. In case you're worried, we made it back. But friends, Listen. Too frequently in our relationships and in our marriage, we get stuck in the storm. We hear the thunder, we see the lightning, and we take our eyes off the pinnacle. 
We engage one another out of fear. We contend with one another out of selfishness. We regard one another in the flesh, and we never reach the top where all of the power and all of the perspective awaits us. We live for ourselves when all the while we've been bought for a better purpose. We've been given a better power. We've, we've been granted a far superior and more accurate way of seeing one another. We stop before the pinnacle. So today, here's what I want to call you to do. If you've been living at that pinnacle and everything I've said to you today has been yes and amen, thank God and ask for a double portion to stay there. But if you've been stuck in the storms and the storms have been defining how you view one another, the storms have taken you, your eyes off of who you are and who your spouse is, let's make today the day we step up on the gospel. Let's make today the day we relish the reality that Christ died for us so that we do not live for ourselves but for him. Let's stop regarding one another according to the flesh and regard one another as new creations because all of this is from God who doesn't hold your trespasses against you. Praise God. Therefore, we don't hold our, our spouse's trespasses against them. And let's allow the gospel as we do this, to shine forth out of our homes. Amen? Pray with me, please. Father, what a great, great privilege that we have an identity we did not earn and we cannot lose. What great comfort to know that you've not only saved us and put us in a waiting room for heaven, but you have called us to active relationship with you and with your spirit so that we could live a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, we are lights in a dark world. Would you give us the power to live at the top of that mountain, to live as new creations, that we as individuals, that we in our homes, in our marriages, and that this church can shine brightly with the hope of the gospel. Help us to that end, we pray, for your glory and for the good of our homes. Amen.